0: First John chapter two. This this week we're looking at uh, just two verses. But two weeks back, uh, we started our study through the book of First John, and we have learned so far that the Apostle John is addressing some false teaching in the Christian church about the issue of the place of sin in the in the Christian life. And if you look at verse six, and verse eight, and verse ten. In 1 John chapter 1, you will see him address three specific false teachings that were going on during that time. And um, you see those verses begin with the phrase, if we say, if we say, if we say. And in each of these three false teachings, um, it shares an untruth about the issue of sin in the Christian life. And this is how John responds to them. And the first claim in verse 6 is that it doesn't matter whether you go on sinning, you can still have fellowship with God. Um, that was a false claim. The second claim is that once you're a believer, at least once you are a, a super-Christian or an enlightened Christian, you no longer have a sin nature. And that's also a false claim. And the third claim is that you can be a Christian and actually stop sinning altogether. And John challenges the untruths. These untruths have untruth been taught in the different churches and in these statements that he makes. Um, now having made that point, and having looked at last week, the first chapter, one could draw the conclusion that while well, sin is an ongoing reality in a believer's life, and there's nothing I can do to change it, um, we can do what we want. We can sin and behave as we please. It's not that big a problem, we just keep on sinning, God will understand, I'm a sinner. And John, in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, in chapter 2 here, he wants to address that attitude, he wants to address that, that false assumption. He's basically saying, no, 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 that's not what I'm trying to promote, that's not what I'm saying. Of course, sin is an ongoing reality that we have to battle with all the time, but that's not what I've said to you that we can do what we want. Um, so we're going to look at this false assumption and really this uh, false belief that was also taking root in the early church at the time um, of the apostles. So I want to read from verse 1 of John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 1 and just the first two verses of chapter 2 And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray together before we go to word. Uh... Father, we do thank you this morning that you have conquered death. Thank you, Lord, that you have victory over sin. Thank you, Lord, that we have victory in Christ Jesus this morning. I pray, Lord, as we study this truth together, that you would help us understand this is a technical passage, Lord, with lots of truth that we need in order to overcome this sin that we struggle with. Father, we pray that you would give us the courage we need, Lord, to be willing to put our faith and our trust in you. The Spirit of God would help us, Lord, to run away from these temptations that so easily beset us. Lord, this morning we pray we would see the gain sufficiency of Christ, that we would see the righteousness of Christ, and we would run towards it because of the wonderful atonement that was made on our behalf. Lord, please teach us. May the Spirit of God open our eyes, may He open our ears, may He open our hearts to the Word of God this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the story is told about the, the founder of the Persian Empire, Cyrus. And it's told that Cyrus once captured a prince and his family. And when they came before him, Cyrus asked the, the prisoner, What will you give me if I release you? And the prisoner said, Well, I'll give you half of my wealth. And then Cyrus asked, what would you give me if I release your children? And he replied, I'll give you everything that I possess. And then Cyrus asked, well, what would you give me if I release your wife? And the prince said, your majesty, I will give you my life itself. And Cyrus was so moved by this man's devotion to his wife that he decided to set them free, the whole family. And as they were returning home together, the prince made a remark to his wife and he said, wasn't Cyrus a, a kind man, And wasn't he a, a gentle man, wasn't he a, a handsome man? With a look, a look of deep love for, for her husband, the wife replied and she said, I didn't really notice. I could only keep my eyes upon you, the one who was willing to give himself for me. Like that wife of the prince, we need to be looking at Christ, our Redeemer, with gratitude, with thankfulness, because he is the one who has given himself for us, for our lives. He's the one who has paid the ransom that needed to be paid Today we look at this subject of this ransom, we look at this atonement, this propitiation that is described in these verses. We see, of course, from the previous chapter, we've already learned that because we are by nature children of God's wrath, we, we deserve this judgment, we deserve to be punished for our sins, we deserve death and hell. Only because of Christ's atoning sacrifice can we become children of God. We're not born into a Christian family. We're not born into a Christian home. And atonement has to be paid, has to be made for our sins. Today we're going to look mainly just at these two verses in chapter 2. The work that Christ accomplished on the cross. And the work that He is doing at present. It's an ongoing work. Let's never forget that. It's an ongoing work in the life of the believer. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Test of a True Believer. And Of course, the basis of this test um, is here in verse 1 to verse 6. But today we're just going to be looking at verse 1. Notice verse 1. John begins the second chapter by stating the purpose. And the first point is that Christ is our advocate. Christ is our advocate, but look what he says in verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's important for us to notice how John addresses his readers, that's the first thing that he establishes, he calls them my little children. And he does that because he was the oldest apostle that was alive um, during this time. He might have been the only apostle alive during this time. And he was an older man, he was an aged man, um, he was an aged aged pastor that was addressing um, the church as as his children. And the second reason could be that even though knowing that his readers were, were not in very good company, and even though they were being... Influenced by the the false teachers, he nonetheless addresses them in a very loving way, in a very loving manner. They were not in a very good spiritual state. And we we get that from the the different teachings that they had um, absorbed and and that they were listening to. So, of course, there's an expression of concern in his voice here. Um, A concern for those that he has disciples, those that he has pastored, and the churches that he is writing to, the ones that he has served. But after addressing these readers in this very loving manner, John states the purpose. If you look there in verse 1, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that. Now this means everything that John has written so far, the call for fellowship with Christ and the test of true Christian fellowship, which we looked at in chapter 1. All these things John has, has written so that we may not sin. He's writing this so that we may not sin. This is a very important statement you can underline that in your Bibles. That's the whole purpose of why he's writing. John wants his readers to respond to God's mercy. He wants them to understand what it means to live a life of obedience as they, as they walk this, this path. I've mentioned this before. A quote by Thomas Watson, the Puritan, English Puritan. and He said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That is really what John is saying here to his readers. That's what John is saying here. We need to love Christ more than anything else. We need to remember who Christ is. And if we are delighted in Christ and we are walking in the light will not want to sin, sin will be bitter, we will enjoy Christ even more. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, in the gospel, the Lord himself says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Mammon. Now, Mammon was a a Syriac god at that time, a god of money, a god of, of wealth. So, he was comparing this to the devotion and the love to another god, another idol. And he's saying here, Jesus himself is saying here in Matthew 6, that our devotion must be to one god. It must be to the true god. It must be to the only god. And we sin by thinking we can serve two masters. We are sinning by thinking that we can devote our lives to other gods, that we can lust after other idols and serve other idols. Our obedience and devotion must be exclusively towards the one and only God. So, John is not suggesting that once we've committed ourselves to the Lord and once our faith is in Him, that we become perfectly. Sinless. That's not what He's suggesting here. Some people asked me about that last week in the home groups. That is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not suggesting that once you have believed in the sacrifice of Jesus, then you will no longer sin. But He is suggesting here that once you come to faith in Him, once you come to faith in Christ, the reason for your sin is, Will be because of your sin nature, not because you have chosen to sin, not because you are a slave to sin. Paul said something similar in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. A true believer will not enjoy walking in the darkness. That's what John is trying to tell us here. We're not blindly walking in the darkness. We know what is right. Because the holiness of God's light is shining upon us. And we know what is sin. We don't choose to sin. We should not choose to sin. Because we we have a love for God. We have a desire for His matchless beauty and His holiness perfected in us. So we, as believers, pursue the holiness of Christ. The point is, once any person comes into fellowship with Christ, that person's battle with sin is, is an ongoing battle. It's a normal battle. We established last week that no normal Christian on this planet can claim that they do not sin or that they don't struggle with sin. That is a lie. But at the same time, we need to understand that John is not giving his readers a license to sin, to, to live and grow sin. And he urges them that they must fight the sin. They must forsake the sin. And that's what Paul says in Romans 6, if you turn here with me. We read a little bit, we read that this morning, but I want to read the first four word verses again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do we not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. In order that, as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul's point was, falling into sin doesn't condemn anybody, but living in sin does. As believers, we are not slaves to sin. We are slaves of righteousness. We have been set free from sin and Satan. We are no longer willingly living in our sin. We are no longer condemned in our sin. But let's stop here for a moment and and ask this question. So how do you live a godly life in light of this, this ongoing sin? How do you live a godly life as a Christian knowing that We've always had this struggle with sin. Well, John points us to the answer. He gives us the answer in this passage. And he points us to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of our strength. He is the source of our hope. And he is our ultimate victory over sin. We will never conquer sin. We will never conquer temptation if we try to do it in our own Flesh, if we try to do it in our own strength, if we try to do it in our own abilities, we will never overcome the temptation to sin. And that's why John says, Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Notice the first part of first John chapter two. Look at verse one. John says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John says, look to Jesus and remember three things about him. You can underline these things. Number one, remember that he is your advocate. We put a circle around that word in verse one. Advocates. And we'll look at that closely. But number two, he also says, remember, he's the righteous one. Put a circle around that. He is the righteous one. And then thirdly, in verse two, he says. Remember that He is the propitiation. Underline that. Those are the few words we're going to look at a little more closely this morning. So John is speaking to believers here. Let's remember that. He's talking to Christians. And he says, if any of you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So another word for advocate is comforter. Heracles. That's where um, we get the word uh, well, that's where the Holy Spirit comes from. He's a paraclete. He's a comforter. And in this verse, John is using legal language. This is a, a law court metaphor that he's uh, giving to us to help us understand this picture. And the picture is of, of us standing before judgment. And all of our sins are, are weighing upon us. And Satan is a public prosecutor accusing the believer of his past sins, and then God is the judge. John is saying, Jesus is the the paraklete, he's the advocate. We have this advocate, this defense counsel. He's our attorney who is going to represent us. Now I hope at this point you're getting a little nervous. I did. I was. I know the scriptures teach that we all stand before God condemned. He's the judge. We stand before Him condemned. I also know from my own experience that that I'm a failed sinner. All you need to do is ask my wife and ask my children. I have failed in many ways, in many areas. But as much as I have striven after holiness in this life, I I have failed in all of the commandments of God. And if you're honest with yourself this morning, you would realize that there's been murder in your heart, there's been lust in in your heart, there's been greed in your heart, there's been anger in your heart, and there's been covetousness in your heart, and and stealing, and all of these sins which we've looked at um, during the Ten Commandments. We can barely lift up our eyes towards the the one who is the judge. The holy judge. We can't consider this judge because we know what we deserve. We know what is waiting for us. This just judge who is God. He's not going to close his eyes. He's not going to turn his, his head and just ignore the problem. We know that he is just. He is not corrupt in any way. We know that he is perfectly righteous. He's not hypocrite. He has not sinned in any way. There is no speck in his eye. We know that in judgment, he has to condemn the wicked. But yet John says here, remember, believers, we have an advocate before the Father. We are not condemned. Because he no longer sees us as wicked. Those of us who put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ we repented of our sins, we received the righteousness of Christ. So He no longer sees us as condemned sinners. We remember two things as we lift our eyes to the Heavenly Father. We know that He's pure, and we know that He is just, and we know He will not allow our sins to go unpunished. You know that, of course, God knows everything. He knows what's in our hearts. We know that His eyes search to and fro on this earth and there's nothing in the world that He wants more than to acquit us of our sin. There's nothing in the world He wants more than to pronounce upon us the sentence, not guilty. So John says, remember, you have an advocate before the Father. Now if you remember in John chapter 8, The woman who was caught in adultery. Remember the men bring her to Jesus. The men are accusing her of adultery. And they've got stones in their hands. And they're ready to kill her because she has broken the law. And the the law requires that an adulterer be stoned to death. And they are ready to do that. Remember Jesus says, He who is without sin, cast the first stone. Of course, the men are self-accused because they know their hearts. Perhaps they've been involved in this adulterous um, woman's life. What do they do? They, they drop the stones and they walk away. They are self-accused. They are self-condemned. And Jesus says, in verse 11, I think it is, he says, there's no one to condemn you, neither do I condemn you. Go! from now on sin no more now did she break the law? yes she did was she guilty? yes she was did she deserve to be punished? yes she did so then how could Jesus tell her to go? how could Jesus tell her to go and sin no more? well this is a perfect picture what it means for Christ to be our advocate. Christ right here was telling her that I am your advocate. I am the one who is going to pay for your sin. I am the one who is going to give my life as a ransom for your sin. So her sin did not go unpunished. Jesus took the punishment upon himself. Christ was her advocate. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He is our advocate. He will be, he is and has been sacrificed for our sins. That payment has been made. So Jesus as the advocate stands before God and he reminds God that he has paid for these sins. That we no longer have to receive his punishment and his wrath because Jesus himself has paid for this sin. Therefore, God can show grace. That's why God can show mercy. That's why He can show loving kindness because of what Christ has done for us. The reason why John reminds his readers of Jesus' ministry as an advocate, so that his readers would understand that forgiveness of sins is available. It's available for those who have repented. It's available for repentant sinners and as we stand before the judgment seat contemplating our sins worried we need to realize that of course we deserve God's just judgment we know that he's righteous he's not going to close his eyes and ignore our sin. we need to remember forgiveness is available because our sins have been paid for on the cross of Calvary and that is what John says in verse 9 of chapter 1 says, if we confess our sins, He is just and faithful to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John gives us assurance to the the repentant sinner, the person who is turning from his sins. So the fact that Jesus is interceding for us tells us that no matter whatever kind of sin happens, we're not going to lose our salvation. That's an important Doctrine, it's an important teaching that we need to remember. The power of the gospel has saved us from sins and has saved us from eternal damnation. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. We cannot lose our salvation. Those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are saved, we cannot lose our salvation. Because if you are saved, of course, we will no longer live in sin but we will flee from it. And when we do fall into temptation, we have an advocate we can call upon to forgive us of our sins. A believer does not like to indulge in sin. He doesn't enjoy his sin. Of course, that's the sign of a true believer. Someone who hates their sin. Someone who sees the beauty of Christ and the bitterness of of their sin. Jesus' ministry of intercession here does not give us a license to sin. We should have a hatred towards our sin. And John is telling us then, how do we live a holy life? Well, number one, we look to Jesus. And we remember that those sins were, were born by our faithful high priest, by the faithful advocate. And his death advocates for you before the Heavenly Father, so that we are no longer condemned. But my second point this morning is Christ our Atonement. Christ our Atonement. So John gives another basis of this test of a true believer. Let's put it simply. He says a believer is forgiven on the basis of Christ's Atonement. Look at verse 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So propitiation means atoning sacrifice. It's the word atonement. It's a legal word again. It also means to satisfy. It means to appease. And the Bible dictionary definition is this word. Reconciliation of of man with God through the life-suffering and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. In plain words, Jesus' atoning sacrifice is really the basis of the forgiveness of any believer. We don't understand this atonement. We don't understand how our sins can be forgiven. And Christ appeased, He he calmed, or He satisfied the wrath of God by bearing our punishment. The punishment for our sins. And He did that on the cross. God's anger, remember, was was against us. We were His enemies. We were in rebellion against Him. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He paid this price. He would have been just and He would have been perfectly right to have poured His wrath upon us. But in His mercy, He provided the atonement of Jesus. He poured his, his holy wrath upon Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin for us. An, at Easter we remember the, the, the seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross. One of the sayings, Jesus cries out to God and He says, Father, Father, why have You forsaken me? My God, sorry, my God, why have You forsaken me? The only time when he doesn't call him Father, he calls him, my God, why have you forsaken him? It's because at that particular point in history, all the sins of the world were upon his son. At that point in history, the Father could not look at his son. All he saw was the sins of the world. And he had to turn his face away from his only beloved son. Because he bore the wrath of God for the forgiveness of our sins. I might have shared this story before about R.C. Sproul. In his book, Saved from Whitey*. He, he tells a story, an incident, while he was lecturing at a university. And R.C. Sproul, if you don't know, he is a, um, a famous theologian. He's written many books. Uh, part. He passed it um, for many years, just recently died. But uh, he was lecturing at this university and a young man came up to him as he was walking to the car park the one day. And this young man was an uh, excited believer. He didn't know Arthur Sproul. Arthur Sproul didn't know him. And this young man was handing out tracts. He was sharing the gospel with people on the campus. And he came to this professor of theology and he gives him this tract and he says, Sir, have you been saved? And Arthur Sproul turned to to the young man and said to him, "Saved from what? Saved from what?" The young man was lost for words. He had never been asked that question before. But if somebody was to ask you that question, how would you respond? What are we saved from? Well, we saved from the wrath of God. We saved from the wrath of God. We saved from the consequences of our sins. We saved from. The, the wrath that our, that our sins deserved. And that's what is happening here. That's what the Lord is talking about. That's what John is talking about. This atonement. This price that was paid on our behalf. We deserved hell. We deserved the wrath of God. But instead, we get the mercy of God because of Jesus Christ who took upon the wrath of God on that cross if you've ever read the Old Testament, you see plenty of pictures there of what it means to propitiate. We see that in the the sacrificial um, rituals there. We see it in the courtyard, in the temple, in the tabernacle. And we see all the the blood of the bodies of these dead animals. It's spread right across this, this courtyard everywhere. You see pieces of carcasses in the courtyard and there's burnt, charred remains of animals all over in this temple. This is of course a picture, not of God's wrath having been visited on sin, but it's a picture of what our sin deserves. All that blood, all that death, all that sacrifice is a picture of what our sin deserves. And the just judgment, this bloody judgment, the condemning judgment of God, that's what we deserve. And we see that in the Old Testament. And in the ceremonies pictured in the Old Testament through all these rituals, how the sin was transferred to these animals who were substitutes, who paid the penalty that that the Israelites should have paid for. All pictures that pointed to Jesus Christ. The one who would be the sacrificial lamb. The perfect lamb who would take away the sins of the world. But of course we know the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin. It cannot be a propitiating sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. It was temporary. It was temporary. And that's why they had to keep coming back every year to make those sacrifices because they were not sufficient they were temporary notice the scriptures don't say that he is the propitiator he isn't simply the one who offers a sacrifice of a propitiation like the high priest did he is the propitiation that's what the scriptures are telling us he is the propitiation he is the, the priest and He is the sacrifice at the same time. And His sacrifice is perfect in every way. It is unblemished in every way. And it is perfectly accepted by God. Once for all. And John, John says when, when we are fighting against our sin, when we are being tempted to sin, Look to Jesus, the Advocate, look to Jesus, the Righteous One, and look to Jesus, who is the Propitiation for our sins. And two verses should come in our mind when we think of Christ's Atonement. John 2.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then Romans three, twenty-five, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. From this verse, Paul explains to us that that God could not accept us until uh, He could not accept us into His fellowship. Unless the penalty of our sin had been paid. And that is God's justice. Jesus paid the price of our sins in order to serve the sins of the whole world. In order to demonstrate the love of God. But the problem comes when we read the next half of our verse in 1 John chapter 2. If you turn here, back with me. 1 John chapter 2 verse 2. Notice the next half of the verse here. I know this is not technical, but I need you to just give me a, a little more time here to explain this. It's important. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, some people interpret this verse to mean that Jesus' atonement was for every human being that has lived and that will ever live. But that is not what the verse is saying. If that were true, why are there people in hell today? Christ's Atonement is not universal. In order to understand the meaning of this, we need to understand the meaning of the word world. The Greek word for world is cosmos. And then we see that word in John 3.16. that that word world also means cosmos and it means simply an orderly arrangement and it's referring in a wider sense to the world that God has created. It's not referring to the individuals that God has made that God has made and the Bible uses the word world and all in a very limited sense it doesn't automatically mean every individual in the whole world. Let me prove this to you Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. The Gospels in Luke chapter 2. In Luke 2 verse 1. It says there, It is recorded that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And then look at Luke 2 verse 3. So all the world, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now of course clearly we know that the whole world didn't go to Jerusalem, they didn't go to Israel at that point. It's not talking about every individual in the whole world. Caesar's decree did not affect the the Japanese that were alive at that time. Caesar's decree didn't affect the Chinese that were alive at that time. It didn't affect all the countless other people throughout the world at that time. The world that the, the, the decree was for those people at that point in time. They that were living under the rule of Caesar Augustus. So this verse in, in verse 2 and the rest of the Bible does not teach that the atonement of Jesus is a, applicable to all individuals that have ever lived and will ever live. It is applicable to to those who are repentant. It is for those who believe in Jesus Christ. His atonement is exclusively for those who trust in Him and only those who trust in God's Son. Jesus is Lord and Messiah and we put our faith in Him and that atonement is applied to us. John means this. Jesus is the only way of salvation for the whole world. He's not one good way among many. He's not one of the better ways among many. He's not even the best way among many. What John is saying is, he is the only way. He's the only way that you can come to God. He's the only way that you can get forgiveness of sins. Let's put it in a in the language of John here. Jesus is the only God-provided satisfaction for sins for the world and because of that everyone must come to him and him only if we are to have the forgiveness of our sins well, let me bring this point to a conclusion with a few points of application this morning the atonement of Christ teaches us that that all sins past present and future of all believers are forgiven because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. This should encourage us, it should motivate us to want to share the gospel. The atonement of Christ is not just for a little group of Christians in Asia Minor to whom John is writing, it's for everyone in the world who trusts Jesus, who embraces the gospel. And that's what Jesus' propitiation is for. It's for all those who trust in him. And you may have watched this video on Larry King on YouTube. You could Google this interview between Larry King and and Joel Osteen. It was a very disturbing conversation that took place. Larry King said to Joel Osteen, What if you, Jewish or Muslim, and you don't accept Christ at all. And then Austin said, Well, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would and who wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. Those were his words. And then Larry King said, Well, if you believe, you have to believe in Christ. Then they're wrong, aren't they? And listen to what Dol Austin said. Well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I've spent a lot of time in India with my father and I don't know all about their religion but I know they love God, talking about the Hindus. I know they love God and I don't know, I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for me, and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. Well, we can't have a relationship with Jesus. Unless he is the propitiation for your sins, folks. And that's what John is telling us here. Christ's atoning and sacrifice is the only basis of forgiveness of believers. That's the only basis. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. If your faith is on any other thing or in any other way, you are lost in your sins. And John is expressing the truth that there is salvation only in For there is no other way in all the world to be reconciled to God than through the satisfaction of Jesus Christ, through His propitiation. And that puts a question to us today as we end this morning. Have you embraced Jesus Christ? If you have not, the only hope for the forgiveness of your sins that you have, the only hope that you have is in Jesus Christ. You don't have any other hope in in your church. You don't have hope in your your wife or your your husband or your children or your job or your family or your pastor. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. And if you have embraced Jesus Christ and you have trusted Him for the forgiveness of your sins, John is reminding us this morning, keep looking to the Savior. Keep looking to the Savior. Your fight against sin will continue and it will be long. And it will not end until the day that that we are taken up to glory. But keep looking. Keep looking to Jesus, the righteous one, the perfect one. Keep walking in the light. Remember that He is your advocate. And He has paid the penalty. You haven't. He has. And He has satisfied the wrath of God. Look to Him. I heard John Piper in one of his messages say once, To Christians, do we prize the grace of God in the atonement of Christ? Or do we prostitute the grace of God because of the atonement of Christ? So what is it this morning? Do you prize the grace of God because of the atonement of Christ? Or do you think that now you're a Christian, you can go ahead and sin as you want? Do you prostitute? the grace of God. You can do what you want because you have a ticket to heaven. Then you don't understand. So a Jesus. No one who cries for the forgiveness of their sins through so Jesus will enjoy their sin. Nor will they be content to keep this good news to themselves. Christ is not the propitiation for our sins only. There are other sheep that are scattered throughout the world. And their sins too are covered by the blood of Jesus. And we need to go and tell them. We need to share the good news with them. And that's of course what Jesus told us to do. That was his last commandment to his disciples. Go and make disciples from people from every nation. May God help us to do this then as a church. May he help us to be people who are walking in the light of our righteous saviour. May He grant us the grace we need to be willing to share this wonderful news that Christ is our righteous advocate. Let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, we thank You this morning for Your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we've opened the pages of scriptures, Lord, we've been reminded once again of the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. We can remind it once again, Lord, that we are not sufficient. That we fall very short of your glory. For we thank you this morning again for this good news. That we have an advocate, a righteous advocate, who has been our propitiation, who has paid this atonement for our sins. Lord, thank you that because of the sacrifice that was made we are accepted by you. Help us, Lord, to remember this wonderful grace that we don't deserve. May our faith, Lord, be once again in the work of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us on the cross not in our work, Lord, but in the work of Jesus Christ. May we live lives of gratitude May we be thankful this morning, Lord, that we are not paying for our sins in a place called hell today. We all, Lord, have one life to live. And you tell us in your word, Lord, that we need to be counting the days, not wasting our days, but to make take advantage of the days that we have left, to honor you and to glorify you in your name. Pray we do that this week, Lord, as we learn more of your wonderful gospel, your nature, the work that you have done for us. Help us to live lives that honor you. In Jesus' name I pray.